Welcome to the XY Advisor podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. podcast is proudly sponsored by Spider ETFs. From ETFs to model portfolios, Spider relentlessly pursues new ways to provide solutions to investors' most complex investment challenges. And for investors who want to align their values to their investment strategies, the Spider S&P ASX200 ESG Fund or E200 can be a sustainable alternative to Australia's flagship benchmark. This material is general information only. Investing involves risks including the risk of principal. Investors should consider the PDS available SSGA.com before making an investment decision. Products issued by State Street Global Advisors, Australia Services Limited, AFSL number 2 Today, Clayton here from XY, chatting with Bree all the way over in the States from State Street Global Advisors. It is great to have you here. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. This had to be the fastest I've ever traveled to down under. <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of amazing. Like the upshot of the coronavirus has been the international podcasts have uh, become a thing. Like previously, it was like, oh, it's, you know, it's, uh, I can't believe this is happening. Now it's like every second day, which is really cool because um, from my end, it's great to have sort of a, a global perspective on a bunch of things. And, and we're talking about ESG. And uh, one of the things that we were talking about just before we hit record was that 2020, there's a bit of a shift. Uh, I could definitely see it. You know, everyone's sort of noticed that it's been an accelerating thing, but this year it definitely seems to be a thing more than ever before. Um, what's your view? Why has this occurred? Um, yeah, what can we expect out of it? Um, yeah, let, let's start there. Sure. Well, that's a great place to begin. And there's a lot to unpack, obviously. And we think about ESG, you know, it's not new news, but when we consider what's happened in 2020 and some of the headline grabbing um, news that's been out there, we notice that ESG always is a shining a light when the spotlight needs to be on an extreme event. The global pandemic is no exception, yeah. but where the conversation really needs to, to lie is what's behind those headlines. Why, why is ESG rising to the top? Um, and will it stay there? So yeah. when we think about where we've been, if we look to the last decade, 2010, that really was an opportunity to lay a lot of groundwork for ESG investing through the role of education and then, of course, government regulation. But when we look ahead to what this decade, the 2020s, can be about, it's that renewed commitment in actually walking of the talk. So putting ESG investing into action. So when you start looking behind the headlines and you know some of our events that are very timely this year, ESG interest has been growing steadily. So the extreme events just bring that spotlight to it. But the growth and the interest and the momentum and the change that is making this more of a sustainable opportunity overall, when you think about investment philosophy and process, that's been happening whether there's been an extreme event or not. Yeah, a global pandemic is definitely an extreme event. I know exactly what, what you're talking about. Um, and so I guess even if there's no direct link, as far as I can see between uh, the a coronavirus and um and let's take just the environment, for example, I guess the only thing would be maybe population levels. And we're looking at that kind of thing. And maybe 
it, to be honest, actually, probably even in Sydney here where I live, rents have plummeted because everyone's bailing out of the city and everyone's getting so right. used to, to working now remotely. I mean, this conversation right now, Zoom, um, it, it, everyone has the, the adoption of, of connecting in a digital way has uh, rapidly gone forward. And, and I guess that that's a direct response from, from COVID. And so I guess these, these kind of events do bring to light uh, maybe nice to haves previously they were nice to haves, but now the, the concept of someone taking two hours to get to work and then two hours to get home is probably less, uh, less appetizing than it was even before. And so I, I can, I can fully understand that. Um, that makes a lot of sense when, when investors are sort of looking at ESG, what, uh, what are they looking for? Uh, I, I know that, uh, there was a study that I saw, some some of the big trends in in ESG um what is it that investors are looking for when they think about ESG so we've got a a catalyst event COVID-19 bringing about Mm -hmm. this increased desire to invest like this what are you seeing as some of the biggest uh I guess draw cards of of ESG Sure. So a lot was in that ask, so, but if we <laughs> kind of back up just a bit and we think about three major trends, and then I think we can drill down a little awesome. bit more some specifics. So typically when you think about ESG and then headlines it tends to be around climate or in, in the environment, the E. We've seen with the 2020s and what's been unfolding, a lot more attention has been on the S and the G issues, those are at the forefront now. So you see a greater emphasis, and you mentioned some of those examples, placed on social and governance factors, um, because the environmental factors still matter, of course, but those have long dominated the ESG conversations and investment. And in Australia in particular, the bushfires are a great example of a headline crisis that was very centered on the E. When you think about uh, COVID-19 and how that has reshaped uh, work and home life and social factors and the way companies, you know, are having their contingency plans kind of take hold or work out the kinks uh, since it was kind of happened overnight for so many um, work environment and how they treat their customers and the communities. Those have become more top of mind just based off of the way 2020 has unfolded thus far. So when you think about what the S and the G factors, it's beginning to underscore how non-financial ESG factors can impact long-term valuations, which has helped us really look at a more complete application of ESG. So this turbulence that we've experienced this decade really has brought the S and the G out of the shadows. And we now have a better understanding when you look at other valuation considerations for risk management and using those as factors to guide you in your investment decision-making, how those non-financial factors in ESG can play a role. So that trend really is important. Yes. Um, This is something that uh, I was discussing um, not too long ago, but the concept that uh, real assets and uh, intangible assets, if you look at, I guess, the, the biggest, um, the biggest uh, capital valuations of the companies in the world, previously, it was all about what kind of real assets that you had. Now it's very much intangibles. And then if you consider the risk of those intangibles, 
this is having a big impact upon valuations. And yeah, that, that it has become a very, an, very important point. And then obviously, especially what we've seen in COVID, um, and, and it's kind of all clicking for me a little bit, I guess, in uh, now that we're sort of saying, okay, well, uh, Zoom, for example, we're using Zoom right now. That, that the valuation of Zoom, everyone sort of looked at, at the valuation of Zoom a couple of months ago and went, wow, you know, it's like absolutely blown up. And, and that's because it was a recipient of the risks that other companies were experiencing. And uh, yeah, I, I, I fully understand that concept, um, certainly as it pertains to COVID. Uh, you, you said that there was three trends. What, yes. what's, what's the other two? So the other one, the other two are also really interesting when we think about, you know, what's why this is going to be more of a turning point, less of a tipping point when we ah, cool. think about our trends. Um, and you know, this is not, you know, a fad that's going to disappear tomorrow. There's real sustainability in this application process for our investing. But when you think about the investors themselves, be that, you know, the institutional investors or the end client, the individual, they have a heavy hand in reshaping what's next. Um, so the industry transformation that has already been underway is only continuing and we've seen dramatic change in a very short period of time. And what you are looking at in the ESG landscape has just been an explosion in growth where there's more solutions because the need or the appetite, I should say, for ESG factors in a portfolio has been continuing to grow. So those solutions are in response to satisfying that appetite. And if I just look to kind of put some evidence behind that, I'm going to use a data point that is from the U.S. market just as a proxy here. Uh, Morningstar had noted in their sustainable funds U.S. landscape report that 564 conventional funds consider ESG factors, which is up from 81 in 2018. So that's quite a trajectory. That's crazy. So, you know, why that matters, you know, in addition to just the solutions, because it's not, you know, products for the sake of products, it's also what's behind that. So we have more transparency, improved reporting, and that is all helping the investor better understand not only their ESG exposure, but take the action that will help them achieve the investment goals that they've set forward. You know, what is the investment outcome desired? And then of course, start thinking about some of the strategies and tactics to put in place to achieve that. But we have to think about monitoring that progress. So we understand the role that it's playing in the portfolio, if if it's a portion of versus a total comprehensive ESG portfolio, so we can optimize as we go, and we can have proper context through the lens of not only valuation, but the risk management, as well as um, some proper expectations about managing returns. Yeah, that that all makes a lot of sense. So um, what is the third? What's the third? The third is is me and you. So it's essentially the changing demographics. Ah. you know, not a newsflash, but, you know, we've seen a tremendous amount of wealth already start to change hands among the generations and where the largest wealth transfer occurs is from our baby boomers as they begin to think about transitioning assets over to their their children and their grandchildren. And yes. when we think about global wealth, um, that's about 15.4 trillion 
in global wealth that will transfer by 2030. So just in under 10 years, we'll see that. And with COVID, it's forced a lot of more family togetherness because yes. no one's really can go too far and your, your universe has become a little bit smaller just yes. because of social distancing. So some interesting conversations have been happening at home and with families and a greater emphasis just based on what's happening around all of us in our environment and what we're seeing with companies on the social and the governance components that we talked about, there's a greater emphasis of living according to values. And that too has encouraged ESG adoption. So when we think about wealth transfer and why that's the third trend is we actually see ESG investing being a shared values bridge between boomers and their children and grandchildren. It's creating a really powerful joint vision when you consider a legacy of that family and that will help move ESG more into the mainstream. And then separate from the family dynamic, that change is just going to automatically reverberate and be magnified when we think about the increasing government regulation and institutional investments. Wow, so, so it's almost as if with an intergenerational wealth transfer, uh, aligning values to the investments is something that the older and the younger generation can partake in almost equally to, to, to an equal measure or to, to, especially with an interest. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's a really interesting insight. And, and, and this is another thing that, that I guess ethical investing's really caught my attention with is that on, and when you think about financial advice, you think about uh, obviously wealth management, but then there's this whole other growing arm of what it means to deliver good financial advice where you're helping sort of people understand what it is that they want out of life, short-term and long-term and, and helping them achieve it, right? So yeah. it becomes much more of a well, money decisions, or life decisions, life decisions, or money decisions. And, uh, and there is, I guess, a little bit of a, a bridge between those two events. And it, and it takes a large leap of faith by the advisor to go from being just a traditional advisor with, you know, helping with funds under management and making right portfolio decisions into helping someone uh, articulate their deepest purpose in life and then, you know, organizing their, their uh, life around it. Um, That's a big leap and it takes a lot of work and I've seen it done amazingly well, but as, as a former advisor, I do understand getting from one to the other is, is a bit of a journey and, and you're kind of a little bit blind as, you, as you're walking along because we're sort of in real time uh, recreating an entire profession, right? That, that you, you don't see lawyers out there out, you know, re-describing what it means to, to practice law, but that's what's happening within financial advice. Um, this topic, I feel, uh, is, and we're talking about in terms of bridging, I think it also bridges the gap for an advisor from being a traditional advisor into more of the softer space of advice. The, the purpose, the, um, the, I guess, the emotional side of uh, ethical investing, and it hadn't occurred to me only until recently, is actually a really good, almost a first step for advisors who are looking to, to take on a bigger portion of responsibility in their clients' lives, it's actually a really good first step to even introduce that conversation. So if you've been having conversations about performance for the last 20 years with your clients, introducing this topic uh, is, not a, uh, is not a huge step, right? It's, it's saying, actually, we're going to continue the conversation. However, now I want you to 
feel like you have a purpose in your investing beyond just making returns. And from there, the whole conversation with what do you want out of life? It's not that it's, it's not sort of day and night. It's somewhat of an in-between step, which I, which I'm finding to be a really useful uh, tool to increase conversations in that further development of where advice is headed. So if you're referring to it as a bridge, even between generations, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting now for me that this conversation on this topic can be used to uh, by a financial planner to, to bring more people into the conversation. And that to me is um, that's a huge benefit. I think. I think you're onto something there because advisors are in a very unique position to be the change agent when we think about mainstreaming ESG investing. Um, There are numerous options available when you think about ESG investing, and that only reflects the diversity of what investors' objectives are. So trying to roll that up into a high-level summary, you know, it could be about avoiding or reducing ESG risk. It could be about seeking measurable impact. It could also be about in pursuit of better investment outcomes. It could be a combination of those three things. But at the end of the day, when you think about wealth management and the value in the relationship for advised clients is what is their motivation? What are their goals? That is bespoke to them and their family. So when you think about the role of ESG investing, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach. So deeper levels of discovery and considerations for strategy and application will vary by client based on what they want to achieve, how they want to achieve it. Um, And it's going to be the combination, to your point, of the EQ, which is the emotional quotient, and the intellectual quotient of putting it to work. So you're casting a dollar vote in the change you wish to see in the world, and you're doing it very purposefully, but you're also doing it where it's not a trade-off for returns. It's not an, you know, you don't have to do it either or here, but it is about being thoughtful about how you maximize the resources you have to work with and what you want to achieve. And then focusing in on what's possible for this family, for this client, and it's giving them value uh, alongside their values uh, in terms of return on investment. Mm. Um, when you break down those demographics a little bit more or, or, or segments of, mm-hmm. of the population that are investing and, and, and interested in ESG investing, do you have, um, do you have any sort of data upon the differences and the strengths and weaknesses and, and how interested perhaps the different segments are? I do. So when you think about the key and client segments that are really kind of leading the way here, Hands down, it's not a secret, but millennials aren't out in front. Go. <laughs> oh, yeah. As, as, as an elder millennial, holla. <laughs> yeah. So you all are leading the way here. But also the female investor is leading the way too. Yes. Um, when we think about two key client segments, and they're important segments for you know two reasons, is they are your next best client. And, you know, when I think about women in particular, you know, they are through their own income earning potential, as well as when you consider the inheritance component and the wealth transfer aspect, really going to be controlling a significant amount of wealth. So they're wanting to be more involved. uh, They have the power of the purse. And when you think looking to grow as a practitioner, you know, she should not be underestimated as a, a client with impact. Millennials, of course, are the largest generation that we've seen post baby boomers, and they're very interested in um, their assets and putting it to work, 
But as yeah. you think about, to your point, older millennials and younger millennials, yeah, those are two different. very different segments in oh, one's yes. life. Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> I just scrape in as, as born in 83. I like, I'm right on that cusp, but, but I talk to someone who's say 10 years younger. And I'm like, Oh my God, I don't know what Fortnite <laughs> is. Yeah. So in both those segments, broad brush does not apply yeah. because you have different priorities and you have different things pulling on you, different income earning potential. When you start to really think about the difference between a younger millennial and an older millennial. But yeah. that said this, when you think about ESG, you know, they're being very proactive and investors overall, the individual, you know, are taking an interest in looking at product solutions and wanting to work with the financial advisor to help them navigate this space. So some evidence here on what they're really looking for is overall, we see about a third of investors agreeing that they want to make a tangible difference and an impact through their investments. Now, when we look at that through some key client segment lenses, Almost 60% of millennials will agree with that statement and more women, more so than men, feel strongly about that statement. Right. Uh, when we look at um, you know, inquiries about allocation plans, uh, we're seeing a signal from investors when it comes to ESG investing. They plan to increase their allocation of ESG over the next 24 months. 25% in the US are saying that. Uh, when we look generationally and global, in those statistics, 31% of millennials plan to increase. 23% of Gen X, so not too far behind, plan yeah. to increase their allocation levels. So when you think about you know, what it means to put ESG into practice, 24 months is a very short period of time. So now is the time to have those conversations. And when you think about does social, political, or environmental factors impact the way an individual thinks about their decisions to invest or examples in the beginning about uh, the way a company is treating employees or their you know, communities um, and consumers, it does matter. And these, these numbers are really eye-popping. So 68% of female investors uh, when evaluating investments will place a higher value on that strategic factor. And 82% of millennials will place a higher value on that strategic factor that they want to be looking at some of those factors wow. the, before they make a choice to invest, whether it's a stock, a mutual fund or an ETF, you know, depending on their motivation or, you know, who is the one in the news, it's going to weigh on the, the choice. Yeah. Um, I think this other statistic that's helpful for your audience is the role of the advisor. 75% of millennials want their financial advisor to help them with ESG. 63% of Gen X want their advisor to help them with ESG. They view it as a key role. Um, and in Australia specifically, all investors, that number comes in at 64% saying that advisor's role is instrumental in helping me with impact and or ESG investing. Holy dooly. I mean, that's huge. And if I think about it, uh, it just, I've been in, um, I've been in finance and, and business for essentially my entire professional career. And the, the concept that I've held really dear to myself before I'd ever even heard of ethical investing was this idea of being a mercenary and a missionary. So mm -hmm. the idea of, uh, you know, making money and making sure that I'm, uh, competing in a capitalist environment and doing my best to add value to consumers and, and whoever my clients are.
but how do I do it in a way that ends up with a positive end result to the world? And so uh, that it does make revenue models more difficult, I think, when, mm-hmm. when you add on that additional hurdle to climb. But I, I've, whenever I've thought about that concept, that, that mercenary, missionary uh, sort of view of the world, I've always thought I really am a walking cliche of my generation. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 uh, so, so when, when I hear those kind of numbers where sort of like two thirds of people want their advisor, as you mentioned in Australia, want their advisor to help them make these kind of decisions. I just think, well, yeah, you know, I, I definitely am one of those people. And I've often thought like, why, like, why it, why, are, why is my generation uh, and, and you know what I think it comes down to? Do you ever remember the show Captain Planet? No. Okay. So Captain Planet. Okay. Okay. So Captain Planet. <laughs> so Captain Planet. Clearly I missed something. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Planet was a, uh, was a cartoon. I guess it would have been the late, uh, sorry, early 90s. And uh, there was a handful of these characters and they, they put their powers combined. It creates Captain Planet. Captain Planet's this superhero that's there to like save the world from, you know, acid rain, for example, right? Okay. And it was such a big thing, uh, certainly here in Australia. But it was uh, uh, like our entire generation was led to consider these type of things. I, I just think uh, almost as a as a conscious thing, like, I think, you know, people were creating content and creating entertainment that was tied in with this idea of ESG, even though we didn't call it that back mm-hmm. then. And so uh, I think we're seeing a lot of the fruits of that. Um, and it's a huge, it's a huge change, but it does, it, ultimately it is for two reasons. It's so that people can do well for themselves and their family, but just not at the cost of say the world or other people. And I mm-hmm. think that kind of that view of what wealth is and what wealth does, it's no longer this scarcity idea where, you know, myself and my family, we have to pull together as much funds as possible at the expense of others or, or the planet. We can actually pull together wealth uh, while helping others and the world. I, I think that's a, um, it's a, it's a huge theme of, as a generational thing, um, I, I perceive it will probably continue in that direction. It kind of appears that it will be. Um, and so to hear now that there's some pretty hard facts around uh, people wanting their advisor to talk to them about this type of stuff, to me, that's a huge indication because advisors typically are conservative. We do take our time to adopt new things. And there's many reasons for that rules, regulations, you know, you never want to step outside the line and you always want to put a client first. Um, And so you don't want to be seen as directing a client down a particular way. So it's always been a tough conversation to have. However, Australian financial uh, advice has just recently gone through an ethical overhaul essentially and um, and now it's a mandatory question as a part of the advice process is to is to ask about ESG investing, which is really interesting uh, change. So now it's kind of getting uh, getting introduced not as a hey, I want to force my opinion onto or, or I want to push you down this angle, but it's it's saying actually enough people care about it that you should be asking the question at least. And so, have you in your experience or or is there any research around? This is kind of a question I like to ask. 
you know, how to introduce the topic? Is there, is there, uh, is there from what you've seen, um, a way for an advisor to, to, in, you know, bring up this topic because obviously the demand is there, but you don't necessarily mm-hmm. want to lead with the lead with the conversation, but have you seen, mm-hmm. um, uh, have, have you seen any sort of research around how advisors are doing well in that space and how they like to talk to their clients about it? Sure. So, you know, I think the reason there's so many hands raised looking for guidance on applying ESG investing is there's still a lot of confusion. You know, if we just think about terminology on its own, gotcha. you know, that, that's overwhelming. Um, just the evolution of ESG over the years, we keep changing. So to your point on um, Captain Planet, and <laughs> the, the affinity for Captain Planet, I'm not surprised when you mentioned, you know, acid rain as climate, because in the 90s, we were talking about this as um, SI, sustainable investing. Yes. So, in, you know, the, anyways, we, you know, now it's more about ESG investing because we're, we're taking a more comprehensive approach and bringing the ES and G in as factors. And it's not, and then, you know, even going further back, it's not just about exclusion, you know, and avoiding sin stocks as an example. So I can completely understand why the individual investor is confused. So, you know, the benefits may be really clear, but actually how to, to put it to work, what kind of path do I need to take, um, especially one that's going to be effective. Mm. You know, this is your capital you're talking about putting to work here. Yes. Um, and you do have goals that are, you know, traditional and, you know, some of your milestones and being successful in your financial life yes. that are important. Um, but, you know, how do you navigate this? So when we think about advisors adding value in a really meaningful way, you know, it really comes down to a, a kind of three phased approach or a framework, if you will, to focus in on the conversation. And first and foremost is the importance of discovery. What is the clear entry point? So advisors uh, should be working with their clients and thinking of, and first and foremost on what are the investment objectives when you think about ESG? Is this uh, part of the longer term plan? And based on understanding the objectives they have, you know, right off the bat, if you start thinking about, are these going to take me down more broad ESG solutions? Or is this really going to be something more thematic? Mm. When you have then that bit of clarity on their investment objectives, then you can start focusing in on the ESG priorities for the client. And you can start doing some education uh, while you're learning about their priorities. And you can begin to clarify their motivations, which will help inform the journey that you can guide them on. Um, And it's going to narrow that focus and it's going to crystallize those priorities. Now, that said, this discovery is not one and done. It's something that should be ongoing because if you just use yourself as a focus group of one, your motivations and your priorities change as your life continues to evolve. So what you might have said, you know, in 2020 about some of your priorities and, you know, what was really inspiring that was an intrinsic or extrinsic motivational factor, you know, 12 to 24 months later, that may have changed. So this is a continuous conversation. Uh, Once you have that insight, then the advisor can start thinking about educating them on market opportunities and targeting some of the the resources and select ESG strategies. So this clarity of entry point is critical. And I think that that should be an ongoing uh, check-in because things will continue to evolve along the, the trajectory. The second area is really about proper risk framework. So how do you help the client keep that in perspective? 
Um, and based on what the client's desired outcome priorities are, you know, are those value-based and then the risk-based aspects of that implementation, you know, you're in a better position to understand the degree of portfolio integration, but you want to make sure that they have comprehension of that too, because you're, yeah. you're starting to get into some more technical components and putting the ESG to work. Um, then when you start thinking about what's the right amount of ESG strategies that should be allocated to a client's portfolio, if it's not a, you know, completely holistic ESG portfolio unto itself. Um, and you'll be in a better position then to help them assess what broader asset allocation can be in terms of keeping the investment plan appropriately balanced. And you're avoiding introducing things like sector or style biases. The third area here is how involved does that client want to be uh, when you think about applying ESG? A lot of the comprehension that clients are raising their hand for is because they want to understand what they own, why they own it, its role in the portfolio, yes. and then ultimately over time, how that's going to help them stay on track with their financial life objectives, both in the short and long term. So no different here. So you can review their personal values and risk framework with the client and help them understand the ESG investing considerations. And depending on how deeply involved they want to be, you have a guide here on the type of additional education, updates, more information, or how they can continue to be their own student of the business um, that they, they need. The last area would be taking that long view because without the discovery, without the risk management, then as soon as a company's trajectory changes or you know the, the stock value goes down, um, well, this was a waste of time as opposed to, well, this is something that, you know, over an X period of time and the time horizon that you have and the intended impact that we unpacked, you know, you're able to understand and align your expectations better. So you have non-financial outcomes and reporting as well as their financial uh, reports that are on more standard process for them. And you can then look at tactical opportunities and is this about it being a sleeve of the portfolio or total integration? That will all start to change based on their own time horizon and the intended impact that they have, which will give you insight into the types of measurement and success measures for that client that you need to put to work. Um, if a change needs to be made because of heightened market volatility, you know what, what are we doing here and how is that impacting your ESG components? How are you maintaining the principles of high impact investing? How are you modifying your ongoing reporting? How are you reallocating the portfolio as the motivations shift? So there's plenty to do here. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot. Uh, but if you start to think about it in really three buckets of organization, it becomes a natural part of the financial planning conversation. Something you touched on just then was uh, communicating the ongoing, I guess you could call it, um, benefit that your investments are having on the world. That's a really interesting concept because people like to keep up to date with uh, obviously the performance, the financial performance. And that's traditionally been exactly what ongoing reporting in terms of investments mean. Are you up or are you down? Um, but there is an entirely different emotionally engageable aspect of capital, which I think you've articulated it really well in terms of well, what happens if a quarterly or annual update in a portfolio included some level of communication around the ESG benefits of, of their investment portfolio. That is a very interesting conversation. I wonder if 
there are advisors out there. There's probably advisors out there who are doing this that specialize in ethical investments, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if that will become a mainstream thing. So uh, obviously, like, you've got these huge companies around the world that have begun adding this ESG element to their annual reporting. But I wonder if there's anything out there in terms of how to communicate that into bite-sized chunks for uh, advised clients. That's a, it's an interesting concept. I wonder if any advisors who, who don't specialize in ESG are still adding that as a part of their review process. It's a, it's an interesting concept. Sure. I mean, one idea, and it's just a tactic, is, you know, for those that, you know, have specific company interest, they can look at, if they publish it, an asset stewardship report and really get an understanding on the E, S, and G policies and practices that that company is putting to work. Hmm. Uh, so much like you would look at a traditional annual report, we're starting to see more publications from an asset stewardship report also being made available. And I think that that would be additive for an advised client to have access to yeah. uh, based on you know, where their investments lie. Um, so you know, that would be something of interest to read. So especially if you know, you're very focused on something thematic like more diversity. So yes. that's measurable. And you can look at the board makeup of the companies that you are invested in and see what types of changes they've made, how they've made them, and also what they're speaking to for the future. Um, Just because they're not perfect doesn't mean it's not a good investment, but you wanna have a handle to your point on how is this progressing? If this is the impact that I want to see. So you are getting a report on it in a measurable way. Yeah, that's a super good piece of advice. What would you say is the limitations or um, the hurdles for ESG investing? Uh, obviously, we've seen an outrageously oh. large amount of growth um, in the sector over the last decade. Um, but it, do you foresee anything that uh, stands in its way of further adoption? Yes. Yeah, so it's it's not all sunshine and flowers. There's <laughs> plenty of um, obstacles and they're not new, they're rather old obstacles that continue to surface. Um, And they're on traditionally performance, data and analytics, as well as cost and choice. Um, But due to the rapid expansion and innovation in ESG investing, we're starting to see those evolving in a positive direction. Um, And it's enabling investors to pursue sustainable performance. It's enabling investors to improve their decision-making with access to better data. Um, When we start looking at things like cost and choice, you know, ETFs has really democratized uh, the space and and making what were some uh, investments out of reach for for many because they were largely for institutional investors, um, ETFs have opened that up uh, and done so in a very cost-effective manner. So you have the ability through uh, ETFs to gain cost-effective ESG exposure. Then there's also with the availability of different choices in the market, different ESG funds, um, you can tailor that portfolio to do what you seek to achieve in a way that's responsible for your own capital. Um, obviously, we can't unpack all four here. These will be here for quite a while. Uh, but I think the two hot buttons um, as of late uh, are really about, okay, so how can we really pursue sustainable performance? What's changing? And when I talk about this being really t- a turning point versus just a tipping point, 
Um, very common objection. And the concern is that if I have ESG investments, it's going to result in subpar performance, or it's going to risk sizable deviations from benchmark returns. Um, but so far, if you look at the evidence, whether it's academic or market data, they've proven to be largely unfounded. Um, there's numerous studies that are available that show the companies that are managing responsibly deliver financial results over the long term. Um, and additionally, when you look at firms that adhere to environmental efficiency, social awareness, um, high governance standards as well, they're in a better position to withstand emerging risks and capitalize on new opportunities. So you can look, use that data, those factors for growth projections. Yeah. Um, also, if you think about you know, ESG in terms of some of the stereotyping, when you think about it as a category, many say, well, that's just a luxury uh, for investors when it's a bull market. Um, but you know, it may, it's not necessarily a costly choice when the markets turn in the other direction. I mean, the first quarter, second quarter this year, you know, we can see some results in addition to studies outside of 2020 that show integration of ESG may actually provide downside protection when the markets struggle. Um, and that just underscores the role that ESG can play for long-term risk management. And then I think the other important point when we think about needing clear and standardized ESG reporting, we still have way to go here. Um, but we, we have to continue to improve ESG reporting. And when we think about global coverage, that's only going to improve the investment solutions that are available today and what will be offered in the future. You know, case in point, we can really focus in on what's financially material so distinctly because increased reporting in non-traditional areas has already been in motion. So definitely need more work here in creating consistency you know, there's not only a lot of terminology going around, but there's also different scoring methodologies. So there's no yeah. standardization. So there needs to be some consistency for companies, for index providers, and for asset managers. But that all said, you know, those limitations are no reason for uh, an investor to be sitting on the sideline because essentially we'd be making the perfect the enemy of the good. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, so I guess there is issues with how ESG is reported in, in terms of there's no, there's no proper or at least unanimous benchmarking tools. And that's, that's creating issue with the communication of how quote unquote ESG something is, is, is that, is that it? Yeah. So if there's, because there's different scoring available, a company can have different ESG ratings. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, we are starting as an industry to gather around a few core frameworks, um, but more work needs to be done here. So, we, you know, we have the transparency as well as the consistency. So when companies are looking to adhere and manage to their ratings so they know what it is on one index versus one methodology versus another methodology, they know the differences mm. or and or we can close some of those gaps because that those deviations can be confusing for the investor yes. in terms of what to expect or why that rating is so, um, you know, when you, when you look at a particular company and whether it's included, if you're buying an ETF, it's included in the index or not. And if it's not, why not? Yes. 
<clears throat> which brings to mind um, one of the words I've learned uh, during this now 10 part um, ethical investment series, and that is greenwashing. Greenwashing, <laughs> right? And so I guess that the uh, that the issue is if there are multiple um, methodologies for for rating if something's ESG or not. Uh, I guess an advisor wouldn't want to be in a position where they've leaned on one set of scoring, but then another set of scoring says, "Ah, oh, that's not good enough." Uh, you've you, you've you've somehow ended up giving your clients. Uh, investments that are greenwashed like no one wants to be in that position i'd imagine um and so is is there in in the in the pantheon or however many there are um measuring uh methodologies is there something that is more uh perhaps reliable that you can lean on um is, is there something that is more even if it's more complex is more holistic i guess is, is there somewhere that an advisor can go to be a little bit more sure that what's being recommended uh, has a bit more of a, a sturdy backbone to it rather than say something from the 1980s that hasn't been changed and, uh, you know, it's, it, eventually you're going to get pointed the finger at somehow. You know what I mean? You always got to watch out for that sort of stuff. You do. And, you know, I think in ESG investing, it's very important to really look under the hood. Yeah. So, you know, what is this based on? And the methodology, is it sound and something you're comfortable with? And how is it being reported in terms of the progression? So, you know, I know you had that conversation with um, our partners at S&P Dow Jones Indices, and, you know, they were probably speaking to you about best-in-class approach, you know, utilizing their 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 methodology and they're very clear on what is in an index in this case obviously we're talking about passive investment and what's not and and why Um, so and then if it's rebalanced you also have the understanding of what left the index and what came into the index Hmm. so you need to have the consistent and transparent reporting about what is in the investment vehicle that you are choosing to uh, integrate into the portfolio. Uh, So you are comfortable with that. And, you know, there are some standards and you can certainly look to those to guide you. And, you know, greenwashing, you know, it's a bit of a blurry line uh, where, you know, especially when I look at some of the proliferation of new product and the conversion of some existing products over to ESG, you know, that's where things can get uh, into the gray area. So again, word to the buyer, really look under the hood to make sure the investment objective that you have is being satisfied by the investment solutions you are choosing to put to work. Um, And you are comfortable with the reporting and you have enough transparency that you can uh, be confident in it over the long term. Yes. Um, From the advisor's point of view, the last thing you want to uh, do is say, end up choosing an investment option and the only difference was in the product disclosure statement that uh the company went from coal to clean coal (laughs) right yeah yeah i mean when you go to i mean if you think about what your clients want you know and those motivations that we were talking about you know so to put some that into more concrete context 
you know, you're going to have some clients that are very focused on the financial returns, and you're going to have others that place a higher value on some of the non-traditional benefits. Mm-hmm. In this case here, you know, it's targeting specific social or environmental outcome. Um, and to varying degrees, you know, those objectives span different ESG strategies, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. So the advisor really can show their prowess here by integrating multiple ESG strategies into a single investment vehicle to achieve that goal for them. Um, and they can do that across asset classes. They can do that across investment styles. They can do that across investment vehicles. So I think this is a, a really great opportunity to align values with value when you think about the role of the advisor and why that investor is really looking for that guidance here. It's tough to do this on your own. Yes. Um, and, and, and I guess as a final question you, you, with your mention of value, where do you see all this headed? Uh, let's fast forward 20, 30 years from now. Let's talk about <laughs> the impact that uh, investors have now had on, on companies and on, on how the world works in terms of commerce, um, the, the creation of value, right? Like where, mm-hmm. where is the future in term, what's the, what's the long-term impact of impact investing, you know, like what, where, where does this, where does this all lead us? Sure. So, you know, if we just think about where we are now, the current environment has really done a great job highlighting the importance of integrating ESG factors into investment decision-making. But at the same time, it's also given us an opportunity to really see a harsher light on the fact that we still have much work to do here when it comes to data, consistent standards and definitions around the globe. So if we take that one step further, deeper insights into what this really means for clients and their portfolio needs is really the future. Um, And the the ability for us to improve scoring data and have more ESG data providers that are investing in developing ESG scoring solutions, the more that we will see companies prioritize reporting and disclosure. Um, And so the future is bright but we have to do three things. So I would say we have to continue to be dedicated on improving ESG reporting. We have to make sure that we're diligent with discovery and education with the clients that we serve, the individual investor, really understand their motivations and support their goals because it's going to be a journey for them. Many are gonna be at the very beginning as learners, Um, then they're gonna migrate to adopters and then ultimately they'll become leaders in the space themselves. And then the third area is um, us as industry leaders. So we have to make sure that our actions speak louder than our words and truly walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Awesome. Well, um, thank you for coming on and uh, discussing that wide ranging conversation. It's for me, it's been a huge journey. This is like I mentioned before, episode 10, I, I literally walked into episode one, I guess it was about 12 months ago and really not knowing anything. And, and the first few episodes were like, okay, what does E and ESG mean? And maybe it wasn't, <laughs> but, but like during this, during this series um, and then the second five part series, I've, I've just learned so much. And, um, and so thank you for coming on and sharing um, everything today, Brie, all the way over in the US. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. Cheers. Cheers.